boom, boom. What up? And welcome to another episode of In the Area Podcast, your weekly source for wisdom nuggets. Today, we sit down with Dale Tovar. Dale went to college at 13 and graduated with two master's degrees by the age of 21. Dale currently works for a science technology company in Salt Lake City doing machine learning and oversaw an MRI lab at the University of Oregon. We talk about some common myths and misconceptions about the brain. We cover philosophy and talk about cognitive metaphor theory and close out with some fascinating discussions about diet and nutrition. If you would like to support the podcast, please consider following us on Spotify and Apple and leaving us a review. Recording live from Snowy Vale, Colorado, enjoy today's episode. You've obviously spent a lot of time around the brain. Yeah. I want to know just for to for someone who might not, you know, think brains are sexy yet, uh-huh. what are some common myths and misconceptions about the brain that you think are interesting, maybe to someone who doesn't have a lot of experience? Sure. I think one idea kind of that we get from media attention on certain neuroscience articles is this idea of functional modularity to an extreme, where we say like the amygdala is the fear region. The, you know, Broca's area is the language region. We just have like these functional descriptions to various brain regions. I think it's just a little bit unnuanced. Mm-hmm. So, and I think a lot of this thinking, it, it's somewhat of a byproduct, I think, of the way we study the brain. Less an inherent property as much as a slight perhaps artifact of the way that we study it. Mm. So I was mentioning the contrastive way in which we uh, do functional imaging. And so if I say like, here's activity for cats greater than dogs, then what I might be missing out of that is just what if there's a lot of key activity that's involved, but that's shared between cats and dogs? when I subtract one from the other and I'm just left with cats, then I have like, oh yeah, here's this brain region doing all the work, right? Mm -hmm. When maybe this is just the brain area that a difference here differentiates cats and dogs, which isn't to say any of the activity anywhere else in the brain isn't vitally important for thinking about cats or for seeing cats, right? Interesting. You could see how like, oh, at the end of the day, when I do this subtraction method, I threshold to only the most biggest values or whatever. Then I get like these nice, neat-ish little clusters and say like, oh yeah, that's the cat region. Or it's like, well, I think first we should say that's the cats above dogs region Mm -hmm. or these pictures of cats above these pictures of dogs region. and like even then, it's it's all in the context of like there's a subtraction here, and so yeah. there is certainly activity elsewhere in the brain that's perhaps vitally important wow. for making this thing possible. Which isn't to say the amygdala is not important for fear, and Broca's region isn't important for language, because I wouldn't say that either. I would just say it, it's a lot more complicated than that. Mm. So we were given these like sweeping descriptions for an area of the brain are just this area is the region of fear. Yeah. And this is the region for language, but really it's way more complicated than that. Yeah. And that's yeah. not even a fair, like, but is that a good, is that a fair starting point for someone with literally no vocabulary to talk about the brain? I think it's, I think it's where most people get started where it's yeah. just like, Hey, 
we we start to learn based on the literature what's associated with what. Right. It's it's a fair place to start, but it's also a naive place to start, which isn't to say anything about anybody. It's right. just saying like, hey, uh, this feels a little naive. Mm. Um, and also, I mentioned to you that the MRI is a bit of a noisy tube, and so what we what we gain in having these really controlled experiments, which is like here's you know, I randomize these pictures of cats and dogs and everything's perfect. You know, we lose in like, I don't know, reality, you know, where it's just like what we're what we're drawing up is constrained by the fact that we have to have somebody lying on their back for who's probably quite uncomfortable, uh, might be falling asleep. Uh <laughs> Uh, like can't hear anything. Yeah, it's uh, and shown random pictures of cats and dogs. Oh, wow. You know, which again, like, isn't to poo-poo the research because it is controlled. We are able to learn quite a bit from this. Right, but it's also uh, nothing like you know me interacting with a cat or seeing a dog. Mm. Uh, I use the cats and dogs example because it's a common example. Uh, I didn't. I didn't just make it up. It's, That's like like commonly used in research and at MRI labs. Uh, yeah, where you use you have these photo set data sets essentially. Sometimes of just cats and dogs, and sometimes we can learn a lot from wow. cats and dogs. So there's just there's just some severe limitations right now with the MRI technology. Yeah, yeah. Which what I would mostly say here is just. It's not to say it's bad. It's not to say anything as much as we should be really cautious when we make any claims about anything. Mm. Like we should be, I tend to lie on a pretty conservative side of where I don't say this is how it is. I say it's my yeah. understanding that this is the case, oh, that's you know, and I think that's the way you should adopt this literature. Interesting. Just, I think we, we tend to think of, science as a process or as a thing as like a as a monolithic you know symbol of like a human achievement and thought and it's infallible and it's i think it's in the these empirical sciences especially where we're gathering data and it's it's messy it's like it was it was like a 19 year old that was like clearly high that just walked into the scanner it's like that's our subject like that's the data wow. right and then we have a fairly like noisy way of capturing the data that we can only study this particular time scale. And then we have our methods. And I just, all of this to me points like, hey, this is really cool. And we should maybe be a bit conservative about the claims we're making from a particular study. Wow. And when you add on like some of the greater practical issues in science in general, but, but neuroimaging, I, I think it warrant, warrants being even more conservative. conservative. Yeah. So do you see a brighter, like, do you know of any technology that exists that's going to clean up some of these processes or of some groups of researchers that are trying to, you know, be a little more sophisticated when it comes to their methods? I don't know of too many technologies, but I'm sure people are working on that. I think that... There are there are many groups of people that are are advancing methods right now, and I think that's I think that's one of the most important areas. Just because I 
I like this thought experiment where I could, what if we gave, you know, the field of neuroimaging, like we give all these scientists access to data that is extremely precise spatially. We have ridiculous spatial resolution and extreme time resolution. You know, we're, we're imaging on the millisecond level uh, with just these extremely precise images. What would we do? Well, I think right now, most scientists, most people in neuroimaging come from a psychology background. And so they've studied statistics. And so they would probably do some sort of regression analysis. What well, is that? So a regression is a way of uh, explaining some variables, some variable in terms of other variables. So if I want to say I wanted to, I, I had a picture of your brain. I had, you know, some statistics gathered and I wanted to be able to guess. I wanted to train a model that could guess how old you are based on that. What I could do is I could uh, fit a regression model, which is the idea is that, all right, I have his data and I have his age. All I need to do is learn the unknown. So it's just like, a, like an algebra problem, right? Where it's, I have two knowns and one unknown, and all I need to do is solve for the known. Mm. And then I'm able to, since I have the unknown solved, I just take a new case and say, Sam's brain. And I could say like, all right, I already have the model. So all I need to do is, you know, like multiply Sam's brain by this thing and I should get his have, age. Have right? like an algorithm or something. Exactly. And so, yeah, it's, uh, it's just a way of uh, explaining the relationship between things. Got it. But I think what, what I'm getting at here is just that the, the methods that are established right now, I think, are what people would continue to use even with this pristine data. If they had like a supercomputer that could handle this quantity of data, yeah. you know, it's still, they'd be still doing the same kinds of analysis. Is that a problem? I, I think in some ways it is. One thing that's tricky is just that in any given field, uh, most people are going to have a degree in that area and they're going to have taken the courses that you'd take in that area. And so a lot of researchers in any given area are going to have a similar background with, with what they know with respect to methods, right? And so in neuroimaging, to, to you know, nobody's fault, everybody has a pretty solid base in statistics. And that's a really important area to know if you are doing any kind of empirical science. However, uh, the brain is a complex system. It's got a lot going on at different timescales. And the kinds of math that we use to describe these kinds of systems are, are generally differential equations. The area is called dynamical systems, so systems that change in time. And so people who are in low-level computational neuroscience who make neuron models of things, generally all of their work is in terms of dynamical systems, right? And it seems appropriate this is the kind of system that lends well to using differential equations to understand, or the opposite. Differential equations, mm -hmm. you know, are really helpful in understanding these kinds of systems. 
And so I think it's it's a little unfortunate maybe that a lot of people in neuroimaging don't get exposed to this kind of math. And so if you're not familiar with this area of math, you're not going to be able to apply it well, or you won't even think to apply it, mm. right? And so, and along with that, for understanding a lot with dynamical systems, linear algebra is really important. Mm. And again, linear algebra is not a area of math that most people like going through a psychology degree are going to take. Interesting. And so it's just like a, a constraint of the field where like even if I think dynamical systems took off, uh, or even if if there were some publications in it, which there are a, ha a handful, mm -hmm. it wouldn't take off widely, I think, largely because their peers won't understand it well, mm -hmm. which isn't to say like anybody's dumb or anything. It's just like everybody has stuff they don't know. And it's really hard to learn a whole new area of, of anything, um, especially one as complicated as like these other areas of math. Right. So you so we have all these experts in different fields making these assertions, these claims with a very specific knowledge base. And this is almost an argument for having having a diverse background in terms of what you've studied so that you could make more nuanced arguments that are more precise. Is that correct? I think that can certainly help. And I think it's tough figuring out like the right the right way forward uh, because I think there'll be all kinds of different opinions on that. But I think that's one thing that not everybody might be so aware of. Just mm. that like a basic constraint of a area of research is what are the skills of those researchers? And if there's a certain standard of skill that is required by that field, but that may not include other things that may be helpful for the future direction of that field, then that's like a certain limitation that's really difficult to overcome. Wow. So I feel like we live in an environment where people, there's, it feels like we have a much deeper, under, like a pretty deep understanding of sci like the science, the way things work. Would you argue that a lot of these claims that we're, or a lot of these assertions that we're, we just accept as truths now about science and the way things work are like a lot more vague are like a lot it's a lot less harder to claim that they're true than we do i i think it i think it depends so like for something like any area of physics like fluid dynamics or optics from most a lot of people in those areas maybe not maybe less today but certainly 30 years ago the the main method was you start from base principles. There are equations, there's Maxwell's equations in, in optics okay. um, or electromagnetics that like my dad uh, studies, uh, my dad studies optics. And so he, you know, like in every paper he's ever published, he's like, yeah, I start with Maxwell's equations and then I solve them or something, you know, uh, in a particular way that sheds light on a particular thing. Mm -hmm. I can use these ground principles, which are based on very good observations. So from there, you can get pretty interesting pictures of things based on, based on that. And there are kind of like rigorous proofs for, you know, like, I, I showed you this, this thing, right? Um, I don't know if I said that well. 
But the, the point is really just that in some areas where you have these uh, like frameworks, frameworks of like, like basic principles uh, that you can just str- extrapolate on somewhat indefinitely, mm-hmm. I feel pretty confident about like the discoveries and what people have to say in those areas. Things get messier when you are dealing with data. Any, like any empirical science, whether it's you know, biology, neuroscience, psychology, sociology, anything where there's data, things are things are a little bit messier, wow. and you're going to just have to hedge your bets a little bit. Are you, and you're currently working in a field where you work with data sets. Is that true? Yeah, yeah, and so. And wait, before we get into it, can you describe what you're doing right now? I, I'm helping build tools to deal with data. And so, like, in today's world, there are a lot of different kinds of data. And you, everybody knows there are different kinds of, like, image file formats, right? There are different formats to store data. There are different kinds of data sets. And so, I help write code that makes working with certain kinds of data easier. Got it. Yeah. And then do you, are you, the term like machine learning got brought up to me when you, when you were being described to me by our, our, our mutual friend, Sam. Yeah. Who's the reason you're on this podcast. Are you working at all with machine learning? Yeah. So machine learning comes up uh, a lot um, whenever I've worked with data and whenever most people work with data. So the thing with machine learning, uh, and can you describe what machine learning is? Yeah, yeah. So I, I talked about regression a little earlier. Mm-hmm. The basic idea at the end of the day is I, I have some kind of relationship I'm trying to learn, which means there, there's some variable I'm trying to kind of quote unquote solve for. So like at the end of the day, uh, I would say it's um, the the basis of machine learning is linear algebra is the is the area of math mm-hmm. behind it that and, and calculus a little bit but the, just sticking with like the little algebra thing I mentioned it, it's it's mostly about saying like hey if I have some things that I know how can I like learn a relationship between them mm. and so if I'm like interested in like face identification. If I have a bunch of pictures of, say, you, and I have a bunch of pictures of Sam and maybe some other people, I want to like be able to train an algorithm that when you come on camera, I can be like, okay, there's Zach, there's Sam, right? Mm. And so the way I do that is I say, okay, I got my pictures of Zach, and I, I got my pictures of Sam, I got pictures of everybody, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to say, all right, this you know pattern of pixels, what I want to do is find the relationship among pixels that, elucidate, that distinguish one person from another. And so that's why I'm like, all right, there's a relationship here between this pattern of pixels and Zach. And so I can pose that as a math problem. And so all I need to do to be able to spot you on camera is I just need to do my best at solving that math problem. And since there's no true, there, there's no true fit, 
and we can go into what I mean by that if you want. Um, Is it interesting? <laughs> it's complicated. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, what I can do is once I learn that relationship, then I can just apply it in the future. Mm. And so that's that's the kind of idea is okay. that a lot of this stuff is centered around learning relationships between things and solving for that unknown relationship. So can you go into it a little bit? Like what what you were about to go into? In like a in a simple math problem, like three x equals twenty one. Uh, I have one number times another number equals a third, mm-hmm. right? And so I have guarantee I there's going to be some kind of answer. I can, I don't need to do anything fancy. I can just, yeah. you know, solve the problem. But when I have like these big images that are like have a funky shape, like I have, you know, 5,000 pixels. When you have uh, a different number of pixels than you do of people you're looking at or images. Uh, so if I'm, if I have a different number of measurements than I do, uh, like the things I'm trying to learn to distinguish, then there's no mathematical guarantees that there is a real answer. Mm. And so from there, we do the best that we can. Yeah. And we say, like, all right, if I can't say, like, this definitively equals this, mm-hmm. it's likely. Uh, ha- what's like my best shot? Mm. You know, what's the closest I can get? So is this just a, a fundamental limitation of machine learning? Like it's it will never be able to fully s- say with certainty this is that person. This is. I think it's actually like a, a plus side of machine learning. Actually, uh, a big issue that we could run into is if I overfit the model, and so instead you change your hair slightly, and it's just like oh that's not Zach. You know, the Zach I know is looking directly at me and has his hair this exact way. Yeah. And then, like, nothing else is Zach, right? Mm. And so, if I do, one thing I can do is just overfit my models and say, like, I, I fit this data too well, too precisely, so that, like, any other data, this is no longer useful for, mm. right? I want it to be able to predict well. Yeah. And so if I have like this precise fit, then it's not really useful for me. It's only useful at predicting the things that I trained it on. Mm-hmm. But I want it to be able to identify Zach in all different kinds of contexts. Wow. And so that's that's sort of the... So that's actually a strength of machine learning. It's actually learning. a strength that's of really it. That's really fascinating. Yeah. What are some other... Do you know some other cool applications of machine learning besides facial recognition technology? So, whenever we're doing, um, so I, I guess what I would say is that um, that this this problem of you know like all right I have this I have the, these data and I want to understand this outcome and I just need to learn the relationship between them uh, is general enough that it can be applied to all kinds of things. So if I want to have like a model of the stock market. What I can do is I can say, all right, well, I have my past data of, of what things looked like. Um, and based on the past, can I predict the future? And so you could say, like, all right, I'm going to say I want to be able to predict you know, this certain date or whatever. Like, I don't know anything about the stock market. <laughs> um, I have this past history of stuff 
then I can try to generate a model that will tell me what things should look like in the future. Mm. So that would be like a dynamical model where I'm trying to learn some kind of temporal relationship. Mm. But it's uh, it's so wide that this idea of, you know, just like optimization with data is just like so pervasive. I wouldn't be shocked if it was like in every area of everything. Whoa, you know? insane. <laughs> yeah. But you, the way you're working with it currently is in a science technology. Yeah. Though I've never actually done like a predict this person's age from their brain. I've never tried doing that. Uh, like that, that's the sort of use cases that I've used in the past, especially. Mm. Wow. So it, to go back a little bit, when you were kind of breaking down some of the, the ways we generate answers in science, you know, with people in very specific fields with a specific background, you know, making making claims and assertions. Would you describe yourself as like almost skeptical, like when you because you were surrounded by claims all the time in science, and we feel I feel like most a lot of people feel most comfortable with a claim that comes out of science. Would you, as someone who works in science, you know, has like a degree of skepticism, conservatism when you make these claims? Would you describe yourself as a skeptic? I, I am skeptical of a lot of things. And I think I think I think it's the place to be. <laughs> uh, Join me. Yeah. It's uh it's one of those things that I think we we like only really got into the like the tip of the iceberg of like some of these issues that uh, that arise in doing research in academia, especially, and which isn't to say that everything is wrong or that even most things are wrong. It's just that we should be really careful, I think, um, about our interpretations of things and also how well, how real is this effect? How well does it generalize? These are not things that people have been very careful about in the past. Mm. What was that theory that we were talking about before we put the headphones on that you said oh. was really cool to talk about? Yeah, yeah. Conceptual metaphor theory. Yeah, what is that? It's a party. <laughs> it's a party. <laughs> so it's an area that comes, it's a theory that comes out of cognitive linguistics. And so the idea with cognitive linguistics is that we can learn a lot about how people think from the language they use and the things they say. And metaphor is one of the things that feels like a decorative language thing oftentimes. And I think we're, we're kind of like told that in school when, you know, using nice metaphors is, is like a cool thing to spice up your writing. Yeah. Um, Metaphor theory uh, puts metaphor at a really important place in human understanding. And so the, the idea would be that uh, inherently there's, there's nothing similar or related between warmth and affection. These are, these are pretty different domains. And yet... Uh, like phrases like, oh, she gave me a cold stare, mm. or that was a really warm welcome, mm. um, are immediately comprehensible. You don't, you don't bat an eye. Yeah. And even novel metaphors that you hadn't heard before, novel expressions, you know, um, 
too much pressure to think one on the spot. Um, but like even novel expressions that express the same metaphor are very comprehensible and we understand immediately. And so part of the idea would be that perhaps as an infant, you were, you were held by one of your parents and you felt the physiologic sensation of warmth and you were experiencing the subjective experience of affection and there became some kind of relationship that was induced in your brain uh, during that experience or during uh, a series of experiences that led that to be somewhat of a coherent metaphor that can help, that structures some of your concepts for thinking. And so I think for a lot of concepts, anything that's really abstract, I, I, I would say I can't really think of any of them that don't rely heavily on metaphor. Mm. And so like we can think of just the, the fundamental nature of like spatial metaphors in our understandings of things. Like what's a spatial metaphor? Um, so like a container or a path where you talk about uh, that's in my past, mm. you know, or that's in the future where, you know, like in sort of implies some kind of in-out containment sort of thing. Mm. And so there's some kind of like, you know, spatial aspects to our understanding of time, I would say especially. Mm. But it's it's funny thinking about, I don't know, like more fun concepts like relationships. Just, you know, hearing people talk about relationships ever, just like think about the metaphors that they use that they're using to understand what's going on. Like, man, we were going along really well, and then we just we just got stuck. We're just not going anywhere anymore. You know? Like, I feel like we're just spinning our wheels, but we're just stuck in the mud right now. Whoa. Or it's like, I really like where we're at right now, and I really like where we're going. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Or, you know, like, one, one metaphor I think is a little unhealthy uh, is, like, the investment metaphor, where it's just like, dude, I put so much into this relationship, and I'm just not getting out what I want it to, you know? Yeah. I think there are a lot of interesting metaphors that people use to understand their relationships, and I don't think the metaphor is, like, any, like, extravagant language so much as fundamental to how that person is understanding. Mm. So the, there are deep implications, like when it's not, it's not random that we're using these words or these metaphors to describe these feelings that we're having. Yeah. Yeah. Another topic that I want to talk to you about is the, is diet and nutrition. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's one of those things that I became really interested in. My, my mom has uh, osteoporosis and macular degeneration. Can you describe what those two conditions are? Yeah, so osteoporosis is the you know, slow deterioration of your bones, um, weakening of the bones, and macular degeneration is just the degeneration of the macula of your eye. And so one thing that uh, was really interesting to me when I started learning more about this, just because it became a bit of a family discussion when it's just like, 
mom has some stuff going on. Let's let's talk about it. I did a little reading. And it's really interesting when you trace the history of some of these chronic diseases that feel incredibly common today. But we've been able to look at, uh, we've been able to examine, you know, people's eyes for a really long time. And in the late 1800s, macular degeneration was considered incredibly rare. Uh, there were not many cases at all of it. And if you look at the incidence of this age-related macular degeneration over the course of like the 20th century and now the 21st century, we've seen like a hugely sharp rise in macular degeneration. One that is mirrored by the sharp rise in cancer incidence and of course by diabetes, heart disease, hypertension. And so it's just one of those things that people are, are becoming more unwell uh, as we go on in time. And that this hasn't been forever and that the incidence of so many of these chronic diseases was extremely low 70 years ago. And I wouldn't attribute that to mismeasurement or you know, our ability to measure these things. I think if you just look at you know, pictures of people back then, I think it's, it's kind of, it's, it's really surprising just like how skinny almost everybody was um, when you look at older pictures which isn't to say anything about anybody. It's just, it seems like we've become increasingly sick and increasingly overweight as time has gone on. And so what's, what becomes really interesting is, is talking about like what's, what's changed if you know, chronic disease is so much more of an issue than it was say 100 years ago, uh, what, are the, what are the main things that are affecting that. Mm. And I think that's where we could talk about a number of things, uh, but I think food is the most interesting one, and I think it's the most interesting change. One, one thing that was, that was really notable, or at least that I think is notable, is the advent of Crisco in the early 20th century. And so Crisco is... I think it was made from cottonseed oil, but... And what is Crisco? I, I know what Crisco is, but what is Crisco? Yeah, it's a, uh, it's a oil that's derived from a seed. Okay. Which are, are really common today. Like, you've probably heard of grapeseed oil is common. I'm trying to think corn oil, soybean oil. Olive oil. Olive oil. So a number of... So oils, particularly oils generated from nuts and seeds became a lot more commonplace. And I, I don't think this is just like a coincidence, chronic disease and, and these seed oils. I'll talk about that more. Mm. So I think it's, it's somewhat of like an internet thing. If you type in seed oils, there's now a lot of information about it. With, with these oils, they tend to be like pretty unstable in the ways you're able to maintain them. So they oxidize at a really under very, very easily under a broad array of conditions. And so once something is oxidized, it's damaged, and it will lead to oxidative stress and damage in your body. One thing I found so interesting is that, oh, and also because of this, they spoil very easily, and so you have to like throw in deodorants and various things to just make them sellable 
and make them keep it all. And so these things have had a, a greater and greater prevalence in our diet over the course of the last hundred years or so, where I think I read something ridiculous, like um, like 30% of people's diet on the standard American diet comes from soybean oil, just in the form, because that's what everything is cooked in. Mm. If you have you know, potato chips, if you have french fries, if you have mayonnaise, it's canola oil. If you have like any condiment, anything, it's, uh, I think people like to fixate on the people eat too much, people are overeating. And I think there's an aspect of that, but I would also say like the food quality also matters. If you are ingesting lots of arsenic, that's just going to be a problem for you, right? Mm. And so I think a lot of certain harmful things have found their way into prevalence, into, into the standard diet. When you look at any processed food, it's going to have one of these canola oil, soybean oil, cottonseed oil, walnut oil. They're just, they're very prevalent and they just oxidize extremely easily. They can wow. oxidize in the mitochondria of your cell. And when we talk about like, like LDL cholesterol count, a lot of the cholesterol that we find in like these calcium, in these cholesterol plaques in atherosclerosis. So if you have, you know, like heart disease, um, they're pretty much all damaged LDL particles. They've all been oxidized. And so it's, uh, it, it feels like an interesting relationship in my mind that I think a lot, of, a lot of this damage potentially is coming from a high degree of oxidative stress from you know, foods that are mildly toxic and l- consumed widely. Wow. So I, I'm I'm vaguely familiar with these like grapes like with these seed oils. I've I've heard about. It. I've been told to only use olive oil, for yeah. example. Is that do you know anything more about that? Like, is olive, have you heard that olive oil is more healthy than other oils? Yeah. So part of this is the makeup of their fat composition, and so the the more. Uh, double bonds a fatty acid has, the more susceptible to oxidation it is. And so, and since olive oil and avocado oil, like fruit oils in general, are largely made up of oleic acid, which is a monounsaturated fat, uh, it is much less susceptible to this kind of oxidation. And so while I still probably wouldn't like cook with olive oil, like putting it on as like a dressing or using it uh, like at lower temperatures, I think is is totally fine. Wait, so then what would you do? Like, how would you cook eggs or something? Like, wh- what would you put on the pan? Yeah, I would I would use the saturated fat. Like what? Uh, like, if you don't have issues with you know dairy, you could use butter, or you could use ghee, mm. or you could use like beef tallow or something. So these are any. Butter even is would be better than using an oil to cook food. Oh, if you were, if you yes, yeah, I, I definitely believe that. Oh wow, fascinating. Yeah. Wow. Are you are you careful about your diet too? Like, I mean, I feel like 
with what you're saying, with its, with its prevalence, it's almost impossible to fully avoid. Yeah, yeah. For for like a lot of 2020, I uh, I like didn't eat anything that I didn't make. Whoa. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I just didn't eat at parties. I didn't really. Uh, I never ate out. I just like I know what I'm. I know what I'm making, and I'm I'm happy with that. Wow. I've I've chilled out a little bit okay. since that. <laughs> We're going to have some food tonight that we're going to cook. And I guess we're going to use butter to make these turkey, but we're having turkey burgers. You love to see it. (laughs) Intriguing. So I just, to zoom out a little more, I just, I view like you have a lot of knowledge and a lot of really fascinating fields. I, I, I feel, I'm just curious, what is someone like you? Like, what do you think? What is like your philosophy? First off, what is your philosophy on life? Like, what do you think is the point of life? Why are we here? I know that's a huge question, but I'm just curious what someone like you thinks about it. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I believe in any like large, like existential reason or anything like that. Um, I kind of, I don't, I don't know what to make of everything, but I, I generally just believe that uh, certain uh, conditions were right for life to emerge and certain processes emerged out of that and sort of led to where we are. Um, and it's one of those things that uh, I kind of just feel that we're not, we're not here for a super long time, but I'm kind of here for a good time. Um, nice. It's, uh, yeah, I... I'm I'm like not really spiritual at all. And, and what is what does spirituality mean to you? <laughs> I think uh the way I think of spiritual tends to revolve around uh um greater purpose or being in touch with certain kinds of I, I tend to think of faith. So like thinking having a lot of belief in something even though um you may not have any proof of of that. So faith. Yeah. yeah. My beliefs are largely just existential. I would say that when I think about meaning and I think about a lot of this stuff, I think of it as a very uh, relational thing. And so, like, what I mean by that is where I would say, you know, a tree... Being climbable is like an interactional property. It's not a project property of the tree, and it's not. It's it's a how in- we can interface with it. Yeah, where it's just like it's climbable to a squirrel, and maybe you know, per- persons you know <laughs> yeah. like capable of climbing. Is that it, how you I look at trees? Do you think climbability a lot or? Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I'm like, I got that. I got that. Nice. Um. So I tend to think of a lot of these things as, as relational qualities. I think we get caught up in like, is this objective? Is this subjective? And I think what I like to say is that most things that we care about are relational properties. You know, a chair is sittable. Um, you know, this is, this, you know, tray of steak, you know, is, is food to me. Um, because it stands in that relationship to me. Mm. It, in its existence, is not food. It used to be a dead animal. It's a dead animal. It's a dead animal. Right? Oh. Right? So we're just kind of 
we're like narrow minded in that we think about these things in terms of how they relate to us. Yeah. And I just want to draw attention to that relationship mm. um, where it's, uh, I think about that with, with, with like art too, where it's just like, I think people get to, like to caught up and like, what is the meaning of this? And it's just like, well, well, I would say that, you know, the creator might have certain intentions and might uh, mean something to him. And it might have some cultural shared meaning that we can all understand. But the meaning, and as far as it being like a metaphysical thing, is very much like the relationship that I have to it and the capacities that I bring to bear when I'm interacting with it. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yeah. Nice. So I'm also curious how you would rank these three qualities in terms of their importance to you. Career, experiences, and relationships. What are the levels of importance there to you? Experiences, relationships, career. Why, why is that, you think? Yeah, relationships and experiences probably, they're battling it out. Maybe relationships <laughs> win. Uh, doing things that excite me and I have a good time doing with people that matter to me has always been the most important thing to me. Uh, I don't know if I have like a whole line of reasoning as to why that may be, but I would say that is the case. And so, I mean, career is, career is important too in as far as I, I really enjoy getting into things and being able to earn some kind of living and, and live uh, based on the things I'm, I'm really interested in. And so those... That, that's, of course, important to me as well. But I'd say, like, you know, the friendships that I have, the people that I really care about, and the things that I get to do with those people, yeah, I, I don't think there's, like, there's no, like, great line of logic that I have. It's just, like, right. that's there, what I like. That's what you, you know? like. That's yeah. what I like. That's what nice. I'm about. Is, so someone listening to this podcast, would there be, like, a party message or, like, please, if there's anything that you take from listening to me, please just know, remember this. Well, I would say that I think we've touched on a couple themes. And I think one of the themes has been follow what excites you. You know, like I, I got into reading about seed oils because I cared about my mom and that was interesting to me. And I am able to remember it because I'm interested. And I think that like following, you know, what it is that excites you is a good way to find success in something. It's when I've always been at my best when it's something I really cared about and was really interested in. Mm. And I think another common thread that we've had throughout these discussions is, throughout this discussion, is really taking the time to think about things and evaluating it for yourself. Because I think a lot of people, a lot of things will want to tell you what to think in certain regards. I think it's easy to say, like, oh, because this study came out, this must mean this. I, you know, I completely trust the researcher to, you know, give me the right interpretation given everything. And it's like, I think we can have areas where we lean on others and we say, like, hey, you know, like, this is probably fine. But I think it's also worth not, not so much doubting other people as much as, you know, really trying to come up 
come to the same answers that other people have for yourself sometimes and like think about think deeply about things and say like hey you know everybody else seems to think this but you know i don't know i've been spending a lot of time thinking about this and something something doesn't quite feel right to me that is truly wonderful advice that you just shared with us yeah, well, and, thanks. and you use the word success and before we leave i'm I just how do you define success like what does it mean to be successful to you uh, I think for me, it's doing the things I want to be doing. I think when I am feeling like I've, I'm doing, I'm being successful, it's I'm in a position where I'm doing things that I like. I don't know. I, I've worked, you know, jobs before where I've felt like I spent a lot of time doing things I didn't care for. And it's like, while I may have, you know, made some money doing that, it's like, it, it wasn't, it wasn't perfect for me, right? And I think being, you know, in my mind, for something to have been a success, it's like I, I want to think the majority of the time that I spent doing that was something that I was really about and something that I wanted to be doing. Badass, man. <laughs> it's truly. <laughs> but dude, I, I just think this is crazy. Like, already, you're 20, you're 23 right now you're about to turn 24 just turn 24 oh you yeah. just turned 24 like i don't know i i think uh hearing you talk you sound a lot older oh well thanks man i appreciate that. it yeah but dale thank you so much for for coming down and sharing your wisdom with us i truly enjoyed this conversation yeah this was great thanks for having me on